Good morning, church. It's always a pleasure to uh, be together again for worship, for uh, singing and, and adoration and, and reflection and receiving the Word together. And, uh, and this morning, as, as we're getting into the Word, I want to start by asking you a question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you had made a decision, you were, you were certain in the decision that you had made about any certain subject, but then when you received new information, that your position on that decision began to change. Because especially, and I know I reference social media a, a lot in my sermons, and there are a lot of times where people end up just yelling at each other, and it doesn't actually get anywhere. Uh, just trying to share more and more information almost seems like uh, uh, you're, you're just gaining more confidence in the people who already agree with you, and the people that disagree just become further distanced from where you are. But I would actually argue that this happens all the time where we receive new information and we actually change our previous decision. Think about uh, any time that uh, a, a new restaurant comes into town and, and previously you were like, you know, that place over there has the best tacos in town. And then you end up going to, uh, to this new little Mexican place down the street and you're like, I was wrong. These guys have chorizo, and I'm clearly going to these tacos now. And receiving new information makes you change your decision. Uh, for those of you, uh, I know that there are some people that are into having the newest and latest and greatest technology, and so a new phone or a new model phone might be coming out, and you're thinking, that's the phone that I'm going to get. But then you hear the technical specs of a phone that's going to be coming out a month later. And you're like, you know what? No, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to wait and hold out and get that one over there because you received new information. Sometimes you might be determined on who you're going to vote for. But when you receive new information, you said, you know what? Maybe, maybe I like this other candidate a little bit more. Maybe there's sometimes that there's a person in your life that's a source of conflict, someone that you might even consider an enemy. But as you receive more information, as you actually get to know them, that the way you view that person changes. This is actually the story of Bono, the lead singer of U2, and George W. Bush. In the early 90s, uh, Bono was a very vocal critic of the previous Bush, uh, George H.W. Bush. Um, and even during his concerts that he would, he would share his political views and there would be times where it, on stage during concert he would try to call the White House to initiate conversation with then President Bush. And it, it, it never succeeded, it never went anywhere, but he, was, he continued to be vocal with his criticism of, of President H.W. Uh, Bush. Uh, but then when Bush's son, George W. Bush, took office, Bono was still a very vocal critic, but this time there was something slightly different. When Bono called and asked if they could meet and talk, George W. Bush invited Bono into the White House. And these two men who were very politically uh, opposite 
very conflicting views on certain social issues, uh, they actually began to discuss things that were important to them. They were discussing things like AIDS and malaria and debt relief and how to save lives in Africa. And so this meeting between then-President Bush and and Bono of U2, this meeting took place in 2002. And in 2003, President Bush created PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And it started because these two men who were extremely opposed to each other, and even in some regards at a political level, that they would consider each other enemies, they actually stopped and talked and met on common ground and by sharing information, by receiving new information about one another, they were willing to change their stance on certain issues. And Bono has even said that it was very difficult at first because he knew that Bush didn't actually really want to talk with them. But as they got to know each other, they realized that they had common interests and passions. They didn't see eye to eye but they agreed on the importance of saving lives. And Bono, who was once a very vocal critic of Bush, now claims that he has grown very fond of former President Bush. Someone who was once completely opposed to this man now considers him a friend because he was willing to receive information about him. And Psalm 19 is unpacking similar themes about receiving information. And it's actually looking at God's revelation to the world. Because Psalm 19 is saying that God's revelations should drive your heart to a position of reverence. Not revelations as the last book of the Bible. We're not getting into uh, apocalyptic literature and, and prophecy and things like that. But revelation as in how God has revealed Himself. These are revelations of Himself that are being unpacked in Psalm 19. And there are two main ways that God has revealed Himself. And there are various ways that they're described, but there's the general revelation... And there's the special revelation. It's sometimes referred to, the general is sometimes referred to as natural revelation. And the special is sometimes referred to as supernatural revelation. But this is how God has revealed himself. But all of the, uh, they all describe aspects of God revealing himself to creation and through creation. The first part of Psalm 19 reveals how God has revealed himself in creation itself. And then moves on to God, how, how God has revealed himself in his word and specifically in his law. And because of this, Psalm 19 unpacks three important revelations. The first, in verses 1 through 6, that nature reveals God's glory. Verses 1 through 6 reveal how nature reveals God's glory. Verses 7 through 11 reveal uh, or unpack the law reveals God's goodness. Again, that's verses 7 through 11 that the law reveals God's goodness. And lastly, in verses 12 through 14, that your response 
reveals your worship. Again, that's verses 12 through 14, and how your response reveals your worship. Before I go any further, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you because you are a God who reveals himself. That God, that you have revealed yourself in the beauty of creation. You have revealed yourself to us through your word. And God, I pray that in this time, as we sit and examine and unpack and rest in your word, that you would be with us here. Lord, let your spirit speak through me. God, don't let this just be a a talk or a, a discussion. Don't let this be my thoughts or my musings. God, let this be your gospel, your very words spoken through me. Use me to declare your glory and your grace and your goodness. And be with us now in this time. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, opening up in in verse 1, David just jumps right in with unpacking the beauty of creation itself. And he says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. That creation itself is is crying out the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God. That the heavens and the skies are displaying the brilliance of His masterwork. That you can see His goodness and His glory within the beauty of creation itself. And every day, every day is another declaration of that glory. As the sun rises and the sun sets and the, 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 the day goes to night and, and it goes day and night and day and night, every day is another opportunity for creation itself to declare the glory of God. Every day speaks of God's creation and every night reveals the tender details of this world. God's concern for the the delicate ways that He constructs the universe itself is revealed within His creation. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul even makes the argument that the world is designed in such a way that every person is capable of looking and seeing that there is a creator. That there is creation, thus there must be a creator. Now this revelation, this understanding, this seeing the glory of God through creation itself is not a saving knowledge, but Paul argues that seeing the beauty of creation itself lets every person know that there is something more than just what we see within creation. And David continues in verse 4 that their voice goes out, the, the, the heavens and the skies and the day and the night, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its, seat, or from its heat. 
Uh, the first part of, of verse 4, where, Paul, or, or where David writes that their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth, uh, uh, Paul directly quotes this in Romans chapter 10, describing how that the creation of God is declaring the glory of God, that the, the creation itself is crying out the glory of the Creator, and that God has revealed Himself not just to all men, but to Israel specifically. And yet Israel, in their hardened hearts, rejects an intimate knowledge of God, even though He communicates through His creation. And as David goes on and, and describes the beauty of creation as the sun, like a bridegroom, he's, he's, per, he's applying a personality to this creation. He's personifying the sun and saying the beauty of the sun is like a, a, a groom full of joy who is, is overflowing with joy in his status as a groom. That each day that the sun arrives like a strong man, ready to conquer the day and full of joy. And that from sunrise to sunset, that all of creation is on joyous display. Unfortunately, Far too often, you and I have become tainted to the beauty of creation. We see it every day. We take it for granted. The beauty of the sunrise or the, the, the glory of the blooming flowers, the rolling winds and the, the, the majestic clouds. And we, we see these things every day. And we actually start to complain about them. Oh, I've got to go do the lawn again. But the, the things, the beauty of creation itself, we see them so often that they become mundane. And yet sometimes we're reminded and we have these little glimpses that break through that reveal the beauty of creation itself. Like when you take a vacation, say you go to the mountains and as the sun rises, it's, it's cracking from, from in between the, the mountains. And you, just the, the way that the sun is breaking through, you see the majesty and the beauty and the glory of creation revealing a beautiful Creator. For us, it's when we go to the beach and the sand is, is between our toes and you, you hear the, the powerful waves rolling in and out. I love to see the beauty of the Creator in the salt water. I love the creation and the glory of God at the beach. For many times for parents, we're kind of reminded of the glory of creation when we start having kids because they're experiencing these things for the first time. I remember the first time our kids saw a praying mantis. And they're not that common for us uh, around these parts anymore, but I, I remember the first time my kids saw it, and they were just like, what is that? Because <laughs> it was so crazy looking and so awesome, and, and for just a moment, you're reminded, that's right, nature and creation is amazing and fantastic, and there are things that we forget about. Or when you're in school and start learning even just the complexity of the human body, the way that uh, you receive an image into your eye and the, the, the lens of your eye flips the, the image upside down and, and it goes in and your brain interprets that information and flips it right, back, right side up again. And just the way that your body processes information. 
is a glorious revelation of the intricate details involved in creation itself. And it reveals the glory of God. And David goes back and says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation itself, you and I, the land, the, the, the seas, the, the air, the heavens themselves are declaring and telling the story of God's glory and His role in creation. They're telling the story of the Creator who is above creation itself. That none of this is a cosmic accident. That you are not a circumstance. That you are not a mistake or a happenstance. You are not the process of millions of years of evolutionary process, but that there is a very real Creator who creates with intentionality, who designs nature and ecosystems, who intentionally designs the human body in such a way that in 2019 that you are here with us today because you were intentionally created. And so I have to ask, have you become dull to the beauty of creation. When you look around you and you see the earth and the sky and the birds and, and even when you see yourself, do you see glimpses of a creative, intentional God? There's nothing in this created world that does not cry out the glory of God. Not a thing. And somehow, when I get to heaven, I want to ask how even, even things like wasps and roaches and disgusting things like that that I despise in this certain created world, that somehow that God uses those to reveal His glory. For those of you that are familiar with the the movie The Matrix, there's a scene at the end, and the, the movie came out at the end of the 90s, so it's not a spoiler alert anymore, but when Neo achieves his, his, uh, his or he fulfills his, his status as the one, that he looks out in this computerized world and he sees the world for what it really is, and there are all these lines of computer coding down, and he sees that this fake world, he sees how it's truly made. And I would argue that as a far, in a far greater way that the Christian looks at the world and instead of computer coding making up the world around us, that we look around at the world and we see the glory of the Creator Himself within creation. That creation itself is not a God, that God is not in creation, but that creation itself reveals the glory of God. But creation itself cannot save. It does not have the power of salvation. And so God speaks to His creation. He gave a standard for right living. And so David describes his second point, how the law reveals God's goodness. And typically, there are two responses to the law. The first is that people gain an over-dependence on the law. There's almost like a, a moral legalism, a, a, a pharisaical 
uh, type of dependence on the law where people start to believe that if I am just good enough, if I, if I obey the rules, if I do the right things, one, two, three, in that order, then God will give me his favor. God loves me more because I did X, Y, and Z. The other tendency is a rebellion against the law. Either outright rebellion altogether and just say, well, I just, I reject that completely. Or sometimes even within the church, there's almost a a Christian rejection of the law and saying, well, Jesus has come and he did away with all that Old Testament stuff, so we don't need the law anymore. We just, just love people. I don't, I don't need doctrine, I just need Jesus. Unfortunately, once you start to describe what you believe about Jesus, you're unpacking your doctrine and your theology. But that's a whole other conversation. But David sees the law as beautiful and precious. And look at what he says, starting in verse 7. He says, The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. Again, remember any time you see Lord, all caps, that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the great I Am. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simpler. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. When you think of God's law, do you just think of a list of rules When you think of law, do you think that God has just given His people a list of, you can do this, but don't do this? Because I want you to look at how David is describing the law of God. He says that the law is perfect. That it preserves life. It's reviving the soul. He says that the testimony of of God's law is, is sure. And this word describes a a reliability, a trustworthiness that it brings wisdom to the simple. That the law is right and fair and just. That it brings joy to the heart. That the law is pure. There's a sense of radiance to its purity that it brings enlightenment. It enlightens the eyes. That the fear of the Lord, not a, a terror, but an awe, an adoration, and a reverence of God and His law is clean. It's pure. It endures forever. The rules and the law of God are true. They are firm like a foundation for a building. And it is absolutely just and righteous. And these things are supposed to be desired more than gold and honey. 
I know a lot of times when we make out our, our wish list and, and shopping list, we don't think, man, I really need some gold and honey. But these were precious things. And even today, they're, they're valuable things. But in, in this culture, they, those were some of the most desirable items that a person could have to have this gold of wealth and the honey of sweetness to, to, uh, to live in, in comfort and luxury. And David is saying that the law of God is more desirable than wealth and luxury. And that in keeping God's law that there is great reward. Not that you get bonuses for, for obeying the law. Not that, you know, I, well, if I, if I can just keep nine of the Ten Commandments, then God's going to love me a little bit more today but that there is a reward in keeping the law because, one, you're keeping yourself out of trouble. There, there is a consequence, a, a, a real consequence for breaking the law. If you commit murder, there is a consequence for murder. And so David argues that the, at, at, at the very surface level, obeying the law gives you the reward of freedom. But in honoring God's law, that there is a reward of holiness and righteousness. And this law is precious to David because God has revealed Himself through the law. That He reveals aspects of His own character through His law because God Himself is righteous and just. God is not just, uh, He does not contain righteousness and justice. God Himself is righteousness and justice. That God is the one who establishes the standard for holy living. But unfortunately, you and I are never capable of fully keeping and obeying the law. And so another aspect, uh, a, a goodness of the law, is it shows us our need for a Redeemer. We need someone to be able to keep the law on our behalf. And so when Jesus came, God in the flesh, He was very clear that the law is good. Jesus says in Matthew 5, I did not come to do away with the law, but I came to fulfill it. And none of it will pass away until all of it has been fulfilled and completed. That God in the flesh Himself says that the law is good. And everything that David says about the law here in Psalm 19 applies to God in Jesus. Jesus Himself, the Son of God. Because Jesus Christ is perfect. In Hebrews 4.15 the author writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That Jesus is perfect. That just as the law is sure, that Jesus is sure. In Hebrews 6, that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner, on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that Christ is the sure and steady anchor. 
that just as the law is pure and makes you clean, that Jesus is pure and makes you clean. As Jesus himself says in John 15, 3, that already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That just as the law is true and faithful, that Jesus is true and faithful. Again in Hebrews 13, 13, 13.8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is the beauty of the Gospel because creation and law meet in the person of Jesus Christ and where you are never able to fully keep the law that God Himself steps into creation and keeps the law on your behalf. And the punishment that you deserve for your inability to keep the law that God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, not only obeys and keeps and fulfills the law, but He takes the punishment that you deserve. And that in taking that punishment, that He submits Himself to humility to the point of death and overcomes that death and rises again in glorious resurrection not doing away with the law, but in keeping and fulfilling and meeting every standard of the law. And so the law was precious to Jesus, so the law should be precious to the Christian. Because you see the beauty of God, the beauty of Christ revealed on your behalf. And so as God has revealed Himself through both law and creation, that you are forced to make a decision. And this is our third point, that your response reveals your worship. Picking up in verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression, and let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. David is moved in light of the revelation of God through through creation itself and through the law, that David is moved to humility. Not worthlessness. He doesn't think of himself as, as a, a worm or, or something to be rejected, but he sees himself in position to this Creator God. He sees the glory of God in creation and God's love revealed in His law. And David prays, keep me from being blinded by my sin. And the words of his mouth and the meditation of his heart, let those be acceptable in God's sight. He's praying that his actions and his words and his thoughts might actually line up to a holy, reverent worship of this God over creation and law. That as God reveals Himself that David worships and he sees God not as his judge and as his accuser, but as the last line of the psalm says, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. 
that this, this God who reveals himself in creation and law is David's rock and redemption, that he is David's hope and protection. And so I have to ask, what about you? That God has revealed himself in both his majesty and glory and creation, and he's revealed himself in his law. And when you could not keep it, that Christ stepped in to fulfill it and to redeem you. And so what is your reaction? What are you worshiping? And you might even be thinking, I'm here at church right now. I'm, I'm worshiping God. Of course, that's what I'm doing. That's why I'm here. But your worship is not just confined to what you do for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. It's not just kind of punching your, your, your church time card and singing a few songs and, and staying awake and maybe taking notes during a sermon. That's, that's not just your act of worship. Those are forms of worship. That's part of your worship. It's not less than that, but your worship is more than that. Your worship is your life. As Paul said in Romans 12, that I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says that your very life itself is your act of spiritual worship. As David prayed that he would not be blinded to his sins, that his actions would be kept right and pure before God, that the meditations of his heart and the words of his mouth would be acceptable in the sight of God, that his actions and his words and his thoughts would all line up together to worship the covenant God. Paul is intensifying that argument to say your very life itself is your act of worship because people are natural worshipers. You and I do it every day. The things you talk about, the things you think about, the things that you prioritize your time for. All right, well, I've got to rearrange my schedule because I've got to make sure that I do this. This takes priority. The things that you spend your money on and you say, well, you know what, we're down to our, our, our last you know, couple of hundred dollars and we've got to do X, Y, and Z, but we can only do two, two out of the three. The things that you prioritize and the, things, the places that you spend your money reveal what your heart is truly worshiping. It could be very good things. It could be uh, trying to... Um, uh, trying to be a, a, a good, hard worker. It could be uh, having strong moral values. It could be the achievements that you want to accomplish. It could even, the, the things that you worship could even be your family itself. Those are good things, but if they take priority over worshiping the God that gives you those things, then your worship is out of alignment. Because often, 
you and I end up worshiping the creation itself instead of the creator who gave it to us. And so I have to ask, what are you worshiping? Where do your thoughts go when you're alone? There's no one around you, the TV's not on, and you're sitting in silence. Where do your thoughts, where does your heart and mind go? Where is your money being spent? And what do your actions reveal about your heart? God has gloriously revealed Himself in creation, and He revealed His love for you through His law. He sent His Son to keep the law that you could not keep. And He gives you a redemption that you could not earn. Will you see His glory in His creation? Will you see His tender love revealed through His law? And will you turn from worshiping the created things of this world and turn your actions and your heart and your mind to the true worship of the Creator over all? And focus your heart on your Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Which will you choose? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we come before you this morning and we are thankful. God, we are thankful because you do not leave us to question who you are but You have revealed Yourself to us. You have you've given us glimpses that we can apprehend within creation, that we can see Your creativity, we can see your, your beauty, we can see Your glory in creation itself. And God, through Your Word and through Your law, that we can see Your love, not just in restraining sin, but God, we see Your love because You sent Jesus Christ to redeem us when we could not keep the law. And God, we confess that far too often our hearts and our minds want to worship the things of this world instead of rightly worshiping You. And so Lord, we confess these things and I pray that You would destroy the idols that we create and that You would take Your rightful place as the center of our worship. Let us focus our hearts and our minds and our very lives themselves on glorifying You and enjoying You forever. We thank You, Lord, and we pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.